Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We have so many interesting guests that give us so many interesting tidbits on how to improve our health. Health is not just having normal values because the values are based on 95% of a very unhealthy population. So we're aiming to optimal wellness and health and vitality. And I'm always excited when I found a new piece to this puzzle of you know how we can improve the various models we're working with. So uh, today I have Terry Cochrane, and she's got. Sorry if I mispronounced it. Uh, she's got a very interesting approach that even includes you can have Haagen Dazs ice cream. So this is very exciting to me. Now Terry. Um, is a pioneer in epigenetics and precision wellness. She's a decoder of the human body. She's an entrepreneur, speaker, and advisor. <clears throat> Through decades of clinical work and unprecedented client results, she developed a novel approach to integrative health that focuses on the ever-shifting needs of the individual. The Cochrane Method examines the intersection of genetic tendencies and the individual's current state of health to untangle even the most complex health conditions. She serves the A-list of Hollywood actors, world-leading rock bands, and their lead singers and professional athletes. That's very exciting. She also serves those uh, seeking hope in the face of health tribulations. She provides expertise in a number of areas, including autoimmunity, fertility, and mystery conditions. Her motto is, whatever your condition, we will figure it out simply and elegantly. So welcome, Terry. Hello, hello. Nice to be with your audience today. Well, it's so exciting to have people work with uh, the elites to, you know, have this, you give information to us normal people. So that's very exciting to translate this to how we can use it. So can you tell us what you do and your history of how you got to where you are? I would love to. So right now I have a clinical practice in the Metro Washington, D.C. area, and we serve individuals globally. So as you noted, we are, uh, are called in many, many cases like the last stop on people's uh, health journey because they've been to many, many doctors before they find us. And so we work with autoimmunity, MS, infertility, uh, autism. We say, don't give us a name. Let's figure out why the body is experiencing that symptomology. And... I have been doing this now for 20 years where I have developed that Cochrane Method, and the Cochrane Method continues to be iterative because my clients, each of them gives me new puzzle pieces as the body continues to emerge during this interesting time in our humanity. And the reason I I do this, I've had a previous 20-year career in institutional finance and risk management. With the birth of my first child, my son, by the age of three, he is now 30, will be 30, we were told to expect brain seizures, that he would not be normal, he had life-threatening asthma, and so we lived with that diagnosis for a couple of years. He was not walking, not talking, he had the 
uh, bone density of an 18-month-old at the age of three. And so we went down the allopathic route. We are here in the metro D.C. area, as I noted, so children's and allergists, and we have Georgetown, many specialists, and they really were not helping my child. He was just becoming weaker and weaker. And so because my personal history is one of being a Cuban refugee and we are, my parents taught me to be in the solution, not in the problem, I decided that I was going to take my son's health into my own hands and deploy my risk management skills to his body, even though I knew nothing about medicine. And so I just started doing deep, deep research and I found that the food I was putting in his mouth was actually poisoning him. And even though he was eating organic and he was eating homemade, he was, Ill, he was still eating what I now call the right-wrong foods. And so this was before the age of the Internet and before the age of Google, so I had to do research at libraries. I, I interviewed parents. I interviewed many doctors. And there was one book called Childhood Illnesses and the Allergy Connection. It was that tipping point. And I thought, oh, my gosh, is what we're feeding him is poisoning my child. And so within four days of eliminating wheat, corn, peanuts, citrus, and dairy, he started breathing. He started uh, receding in his allergic shiners, which are the deep, dark circles that you find under individuals' eyes. Those are allergy shiners, as now they're called. And so I knew that I was on to something. And though even though I continued my career at Freddie Mac, I had my day job, and then I had my night job, which was continuing to uh, seek an alternative solution for my son. And so by the age of 10, he was doing much better, and I decided to shift careers and then move into this new world of uh, where I was told there was a resounding no. I found a yes for him, and I keep reminding him that he's been the catalyst for these tens of thousands of individuals that I've seen over these last 20 years to help them find their best version of themselves. Uh, what I find interesting is I sense you've got a spiritual connection that's leading you to do this. And in these times, uh, we need that more than ever. So that Absolutely. Me. Well, and it actually was, Susan, uh, what was so fascinating was I was laying on my bed being very sad about my son's diagnosis and where he wasn't getting better. And then I heard in my head, well, what if it doesn't have to be this way? And that was what I heard. And that's when I said, okay, well, it may not have to be this way. And that's when I, that shifted. And then the second shift came when I was meditating on a beach, and I had just seen this child who was around 10. We were vacationing in Florida, and he was in the pool, and he was so debilitated, just a child that, a broken child, if you will. And so I went to pray and meditate on the beach. And I literally, with something greater breathing through me, it was a whisper again. It's those moments of silence where the great wisdom comes through, and they said, go back and quit your job. <laughs> and there was no reason for me to quit my job. I was doing very well in that company, but I really followed that inner knowing, that higher voice, and I had zero trepidation one of those moments in life where it's almost like a breeze flows through you and you have such 100% certainty that you know nothing else is the right path. And I exactly followed that. I went back on Monday after my vacation and I gave notice. 
I love that because that I love it when those messages come because since times are becoming so upside down and everything's inside out, that's the only thing that's real is that connection with the highest power. And that's and we have to stay connected in order to stay sane because the world's going crazy. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful that I listened because not only would my life be different and my son's life would still be different, but all these people would have never been touched by this process that he is, I keep reminding him, he's responsible for it. <laughs> I would have never gotten into this field of work had it not been for his, air quote, brokenness. Well, it was also your receptivity to listening to the higher power. That was just the thing you had to trip over to uh, be open to, to be more open to it. But what I find in fascinating about your program is you kind of have some categories of some people have difficulties digesting protein, other people difficulties digesting fat, and other people difficulties digesting sulfur. And I found this model interesting. So can you tell us more about that? Yes. Uh, Within the clinical model of the Cochrane method, which is an epigenetics-based model, I developed a style of eating, which I coined wildetarianism, uh, wild because of the way that the, the definition of wildetarian is someone who consumes sustainably and wild-caught uh, meats and fish and shellfish and low mycotoxin, low sulfur, low oxalate foods to establish a match between their genetic blueprint and their current state of health. So wildetarianism was born from an end-stage client that had come to me that was given his last rites, he had an end-stage amyloidosis. It was a rare form of cancer that had wrapped around his heart, and two rounds of chemo had put him into congestive heart and kidney failure. And he had been given his last rites. His wife was a CNN producer. They found out about my work, and so he really was going home to die. And so they brought him to me, and thinking that, well... We have nothing else to lose. His name is Glenn. This was 10 years ago. And I had at that time an expatriate uh, genetics researcher that used to work at NIH. And this amyloid, 10 years ago, we really weren't talking about amyloids. And so I asked Sarah, I really want to do some research on this. What's going on? How is this this occurring? And amyloids naturally are, they're homeostatic mechanisms in the body that create an inflammatory response. These are endogenous internal mechanisms of inflammation so the body can reset. Well, but exogenous amyloids coming from, we found, the food supply. Oh, my goodness, the food supply. And so what we found in the clinical literature was chicken was the most studied, and then there was beef and then pork and turkey. We just extrapolated that. The crowding conditions of these animals were creating within their tissues these indigestible proteins by the name of amyloids. And what do they tell cancer individuals to eat? Lots of protein because the chemo protein dumps, and so they need to repair their protein stores. Well, Glenn was feeding the devil, if you will. And so when we took away his amyloids and we took away his sulfur and we took away histamine from him, within three months, first he didn't die in the first three months, and the light chains, those are the markers that, read the amyloid burden, had normalized. And so he was then able to continue his chemo and did very well this time. And he's alive and really well 10 years later. So 
that was the genesis of the protein. So protein malabsorption coming from our food supply is a real problem. And then the genius work of Dr. Stephanie Senes elucidated something also very insidious and ubiquitous, ubiquitous in our food supply. Yes, was Stephanie was my college roommate. I remember. I'm so I'm so thrilled you all know each other. What again? You know, uh, two degrees of separation. I love it. And so, what Stephanie elucidated is that glyphosate does three very bad things. It mimics glycine amino acid, which helps to break down protein. It interrupts our body's ability to process sulfur, which are found in very healthy foods such as broccoli, arugula, bok choy, onions, garlic, egg yolks, etc. And then it also inhibits the production of the oxalobacter bacteria in our gut that makes oxalates. And so, oh my goodness, glyphosate doesn't let us break down sulfur. Impaired sulfur processing is tied to mental health disorders. It's tied to rheumatoid arthritis. It's tied to ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, uh, IBD, IBS, all of those GI issues. It's tied to heart disease, believe it or not. And so sulfur became that big three with the protein, fat, sulfur. And then the fat is the, the stress response, the stress response. And I wrote this book five years ago, but more than now than ever, this book is super important in this pandemic because the spike protein is doing the same thing. And so it's mirroring the effects of what the food supply was doing. And so this became a very important message to share that understanding what are your genetic vulnerabilities, if you have genetic variances in protein digestion and sulfur digestion and fat metabolism digestion, you're in trouble if you're eating these foods. And so we found that by matching the foods to these big markers that I call in in uh, creating autoimmunity or contributing to autoimmunity and disease, we have been successful in many conditions where these people have been told you're going to have to live with diabetes or live with MS or live with rheumatoid arthritis or live with Hashimoto's or, or, or. And so we're very, we're very proud of this method and still humbled by it because the algorithm that I've created in the clinical model is very intricate, but its application is quite simple. And so you eat to your genetic blueprint, you supplement to your genetic blueprint, and you stay away from pharmaceuticals that are against your genetic blueprint. And the body, as you said, this inner knowing, it has this inner knowing that always wants to be well, but if it keeps being interrupted, if the signal keeps being interrupted, it can't do what it's supposed to do. Well, it's, you know, it's uh, this is interesting. When you add glyphosate, well, that's going to be horrible for everybody. I mean, the glyphosate will, you know, open up the blood-brain barrier, the gut barrier. It interferes with uh, making the tertiary amines, uh, tryptophan, serotonin. Glyphosate's really bad, and even in organic food, we're being more and more exposed to it. But supposing we could just put that one aside, we all need to avoid the glyphosate as much as possible. Yes. Tell me more about, you know, what what happens in each of these. Is it only genetic that, or is it the epigenetics playing a part? I mean, as I understand from your model that you eat, you know, fairly rigidly for a while, and then you might be able to drift back to eating more things. But it, it, is it epigenetics or is it genetics? I mean, it is epigenetics, and so epi means above. So what is it that stands above the genes that influences its expression? 
And so the Cochrane method looks to the four portals of genetic expression, which is pathogenic, environmental, food, um, emotional, and physical. And so what we know is you have a gene and it leaves you alone as long as you, you leave it alone, right? But let's say you get the varicella virus and that varicella is neurotoxic and now it's shifted your comp gene that is, those are for catechols and neurotransmitters. And now, now you can't think very well because your dopamine is being hijacked by this virus that flipped the gene or you eat a high fat food and the comp gene is a fat soluble based gene and you're eating all these nuts high-fat nuts, and you have flipped your comp gene. Or you've eaten, you've been told that, oh, my gosh, broccoli and arugula and bok choy are anti-cancer. But you have a CBS gene, cystathione beta synthase, that if you're eating sulfur, you're going to trip that sulfur gene, and now all of a sudden you wake up and you have RA, or you have ulcerative colitis, or you have anxiety, depression. It's because those genes, and it's never singular, but they work dynamically with one another. These genes kind of, the way that we look at it is kind of have families, right? Because it's not just the CBS gene, it's the SALT gene and it's the BH4 gene that work together. And then there's the histamine gene receptors, which also manage the sulfur pathway. But sulfur is a big deal because we have been told, eat your broccoli. And if you're eating broccoli, you can have massive issues. I just started working with someone very well known, and they always had digestive issues. We took him off of sulfur. He, his wife came in as a follow-up because I've just started seeing them. He's, he's like, my gosh, I can eat other things and I don't have a stomachache. This is unbelievable because he was told to eat all of these healthy foods, but they aren't healthy for his genes. And so he was irritating these gut, his gut and actually flipping these genes, making it worse for himself. It's that so- simple. For the audience, the sulfur foods she's referring to could be like onions and garlics, the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, kale, etc. Things that we think are so healthy, it sounds like for people who have trouble digesting sulfur, this is going to lead to inflammation, oxidative stress, and all the bad outcomes. So is this, you know, so you do a genetic profile. But and that just tells susceptibility. Is that alone enough to work on? Because we don't before you know what the epigenetic factor is. Well, it's really interesting because I've determined something, established something called body talk. And so oh, even absent a genetic test, what's that? That's interesting. I'm I'm familiar with that. I like that. Yes. So so body talk is what is your body telling you? If you eat sulfur and, uh, excuse me, if you eat asparagus and you can smell it when you go to the toilet, that's your body telling you you cannot break down sulforaphane. We call asparagus the canary in the coal mine. If you eat a lot of protein and you're having trouble building muscle or you're burping a lot after your meal or you're getting lightheaded after you eat, you're not breaking down your protein. That amino acid utilization is not there. Now, we can tie that to a methylation gene or an ammonia gene, but your body just told you, you ate this, this happened. Effectively, your genes just got played with, but your body just told you what happened. Uh, Similarly, if you have bumps on the back of your arms, if you had trouble with acne, if you have heavy, tough periods, 
you're not breaking down your fat. If you have kidney stones, gall stones, if you've had your gallbladder removed, those are oxalate crystals. So the body is constantly, Susan, giving us this high intelligence. And so let it talk to us and then let us understand it. And if we eliminate these foods and replace them with foods that aren't insults to the body, you know, you replace your arugula with bib lettuce, you replace your broccoli with zucchini, you replace your chicken with duck or pheasant, and all of a sudden you've had this dinner, oh my gosh, I'm not foggy-headed, I just, I went to the bathroom and I didn't smell something, um... I woke up this morning and my joints didn't hurt. My stomach didn't hurt. Your body utilized the benefits of those other foods. So that sounds like one just listening to their body and uh, making appropriate adjustments. But, for example, I don't think my body tells me much. I can't tell if it's upset or not. Everything feels kind of the same. So you obviously, so you incorporate what the person's reporting and what they've observed. But for those of us that haven't observed much, what do you do? Well, then we do a genetic analysis. So we take, we look at your genes uh, and then we share with you what we call foundational vulnerabilities. So we, we take a look at your genetics and say, wow, you have 50 SNPs of a certain SNPs uh, signal Single nucleotide polymorphism means a variance. You have 50 variances of this one thing. If you eat that thing, that's going to be a huge no-no. And I've recently worked with someone who had mast cell activation syndrome, very difficult to live with, had all these other situations, and she had been to multiple, multiple, multiple doctors. She came to see us. We said, wow, I've never seen anyone with so many single nucleotide polymorphisms in multiple sulfur genes. So we eliminated every bit of sulfur in her diet. We eliminated also some histamines and we eliminated some oxalates and then made her wild. She, we just recently got a text from her, an email rather, and she said, wow, I think sulfur was literally the missing link in my, my mystery situation. And so the body can actually behave that fast. If you don't so, understand your body talk yet, and so body talk is a great great point that you made, Susan, because sometimes there's so much noise in the field because the body's so confused, it doesn't know how to give you good feedback. But once you align yourself and match yourself to your genetic blueprint and your current state of health and you start introducing those foods back, you're going to know which ones that I call are the sharks <laughs> and which ones are the minnows. Right, because you can maybe introduce one thing, but if you introduce two things coupled with a third thing, then uh oh, you flip. So once the body gets cleared of that in, in interference in the field, if you will, then it's going to start giving you some really strong feedback, and that's why we call it beyond nutrition, because it literally is an intelligent guidepost. Once you clear the noise out, if in the beginning you can't understand what the body's trying to tell you. Well, I guess I have a confused body. Uh, hopefully, it's <laughs> less confused in a more confusing world. Um, so basically, you know, so you listen to what the person tells you, but it's primary. You weigh heavily on what the genetic information tells you. It tells you, oh, you're going to have trouble digesting proteins or fat or sulfur or a combination of those, yeah. and then you go from there. A- any 
other techniques that you incorporate? Yes, I know you're intuitive, do. so you use that as well. Yeah. I am an intuitive, but we also uh, deploy applied kinesiology. And the more and more we understand medicine and energy and healing is that we're, we're all energy. And so we're energetic beings in a human suit, if you will. Uh, and the applied kinesiology, which is a form of muscle testing, we use vials that carry the electromagnetic signature, a.k.a. the fingerprint of, let's say, uh, a hormone of estradiol, or it carries the electromagnetic signature of garlic or arugula or beef or chicken. And so we, de- we use those vials that I've called kryptonite for some of my clients, and we measure their whatever interference is in the field based on that vial. And if that vial tells us your body doesn't like it, your m- muscle isn't being fired with the nerve. The nerve can't fire to the muscle to hold your arm up and resist. And again, as you stated earlier, I work with world-class athletes and they have no resistance to what is their kryptonite. Wow. And so it's really fascinating. Yeah. That's a technique that uh, I've used at times. <laughs> what should I give this person? Should I give them Remeron or Wellbutrin? Well, let's see what the body wants. Yeah. <laughs> but if for people that can't, you know, you can see people online and through Zoom or Skype. But for people that can't do that, they could, you know, your book has a questionnaire and they can get an idea of where they fall by, you know, do you have bumps on the back of your arm or if you had kidney stones or, you know, your stomach upset whenever. So a person can get a, a, a guesstimate of which category they fall into. Correct? Absolutely. So we have a, a quiz which will give you your wild type. What type of wilditarian are you most closely aligned with? And it's the sulfur fat protein, and then we added the, the oxalate uh, version of the wilditarian. And honestly, I had someone at a conference, they saw me in the bathroom during the break, and they ran up to me, and she said, oh, my goodness, I bought your book. I didn't know this person. I bought your book, and that 20-year rash that I had went away. I'm I'm a W.S. wildetarian. <laughs> I'm a sulfur. I'm a low-sulfur wildetarian, and I was eating all these high-sulfur foods thinking I was trying to help myself, and I was literally creating this, what we now know as a sulfur rash, right? So that was, that was a random uh, interaction, but that's how, that's how real it can be. Wow. But I also understand that you – that – in your program, you have you follow a diet relatively strictly, and then later on you could relax more. Is that correct? That's correct. And so what we what we do is we start introducing one thing at a time, one day at a time. And so we're not going to come back and eat all that broccoli and cauliflower day one. We'll start with cauliflower because that's gentler, and then we'll add bok choy because that's gentler. And we wait four days between each new introduction and. Or we'll add back, if you had no nuts and seeds because you were super fat malabsorbed, we'll add in a pumpkin seed because that's lower in fat or a pistachio because that's lower in fat. And so we come back and do that. And, again, in office, we muscle test. So we said, okay, you pass all these things now. You had failed them. We call it pass-fail. You had failed them before. You pass them now. 
Let's see. Let's start introducing. And so what that does is it builds incredibly high intelligence in the body. And over time, and much like what happened to my son, he can now eat everything that was really extremely problematic for him because we developed, in effect, new cellular memory. So the body didn't didn't remember anymore that that was something they had to attack with histamine or beyond, histamine antigen antibody. It didn't need to attack it. I have been working with this young uh, girl for almost a decade. When she started working with me, she was 10 months old. At the age of two, they found she was anaphylaxis to 52 foods of all kinds, part of the healing process of her. And who, who would have thought that this young lady, that a food that could have killed her, is now being enjoyed on her dinner plate? And so, again, it's not in massive amounts, but she's enjoying it, and it's definitely airborne. Uh, cross, there won't be any cross-reactivity if she, she walks into a room full of peanuts, which would have killed her beforehand. So the supplementation that also couples the dietary adjustments are key because, as you said, the oxidative stress, the leaky gut, the LPS, the antigen response, the histamine response, the affront of the body saying, don't do this. When we're getting a a response, the body is just mad at us. (laughs) It's telling us something, something went sideways and this is what has happened. We just don't get kidney stones overnight. They've been accumulating, microaccumulating, you know, bit by bit. And then finally we, we were in pain and all of a sudden we have a kidney stone, but they just didn't materialize overnight. So the body's been out of alignment, if you will, for a while. But I really believe that anything is possible. Susan, we most recently had a young man, 38 years old, who woke up six months ago, or I guess it was a year ago because he's been working with me with, um, with me for six months and he had been struggling with MS for several months before that. He woke up one morning, he couldn't walk. He had been a healthy man. And so what we figured, it was a reactivation of the varicella virus. And what's so fascinating, Susan, is after our first visit, he was walking again. And he had, as he said, a six-pack back. So he had to be wild. He says now he protein shames his friends because if you're eating the wrong kind of protein, you could effectively these amyloids trip viruses of all kinds. But what's so remarkable This is the body's innate ability to heal. We um, connected last week, and he told me that the neurologists are dumbfounded. All of the lesions are gone. They're gone. The neurologist said not only not one in a million, but one in 10 million that this, this occurs. Wow. That's fascinating. So as a summary, uh, there are these, you know, some of us have trouble digesting protein, some have trouble digesting fats, other trouble digesting sulfur. Through genetic tests or through a quiz or just listening to our body, when it's not terribly confused, uh, we can get an idea of which track will help us. And also, I believe that she believes in the more wild type, like game and duck as opposed to chicken. I mean, as I recall, chicken, let's leave out the chicken that get arsenic to plump them up and the antibiotics and the hormones and the insecticides, but just an extremely healthy chicken, uh, as I understand you see as a challenge. It is a challenge, and I haven't found the actual literature around that, but aviary communicate by sonar. We know we transfer genes, and so these 
even we I, that's why I've called it the dirty bird because I feel that the clean birds are dirt or the dirty birds are being uh, dirty on the clean birds and there I haven't found any chicken in the U.S. where people are eating it and it it makes them feel good. Another amazing case was osteomyelitis, which is a bone bacteria. The gentleman came to us. He was a type 1 diabetic, and he had osteomyelitis, and eight rounds of antibiotic could not fix the osteomyelitis. Well, we took him off of uh, the animal protein that was non-wild. And why wild? Because wild is less of an amyloid burden. And the amyloids, we now know that they literally turn on these pathogens, which then flip the genes. So within eight weeks, his osteomyelitis had completely resolved. But what was so fascinating, Susan, is that he was down 90% on his insulin. He was a type 1 diabetic, 90% on his insulin. So he decided to eat one meal of chicken. It raised his blood sugar by 250 points for four days. He thought that was an anomaly. He waited another month. The same thing happened. Chicken was tripping some pathogens that was hitting the, the, the beta cells of the pancreas. That's interesting. Because when I interviewed Russell Jaffe, I asked him, because my sugars would go up to 600, which is 33 in the European system, after mm-hmm. meal. And he says, oh, that's a food allergy. Well, I thought maybe I'm on the path toward diabetes. But, you know, oh, that's a food allergy. It's something I wouldn't have suspected. Exactly. So the foods can trip the genetics, that's the the world of nutrigenomics is how food influences our genes, but it doesn't just influence our genes. It influences the pathogens inside of us that then influence the genes. What and other... so that's part... Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that's one of the tenets of the Cochrane method is what's the portal of genetic expression? It's a pathogen. Well, how did that pathogen get there? Well, maybe that amyloid, which we know in the clinical literature, amyloid will turn on viral loads. And you heard me lecture on that where we have the clinical literature behind it, and then that viral load can trip your, that Epstein-Barr can trip you into autoimmunity uh, of a thyroid condition by the name of Epstein-Barr, or it can turn on the varicella virus in this gentleman's case with MS, that's what happened. His varicella virus got turned on. He stopped eating non-wild meat. He also had a big sulfur sensitivity. And this man is now walking and no lesions. <laughs> wow. Remarkable. It's this remarkable. Incredible. How would we know if we're eating an amyloid? What, you know, what, what, <laughs> well, you you know I've never much, met an amyloid can, that I didn't like, so how do okay. we know? <laughs> Well, if you live in the United States and you're eating commercially farmed chicken, uh, because of the way they're crowded, these chickens have are creating within them these truncated protein structures. And the hypothesis is the crowding is stressing these birds, and the and these birds are then becoming amyloid-like in the tissue, and so it cannot be broken down by the cooking process. And so you eat the dirty bird, which I have deemed. And the dirty bird does very bad things to your body. And that's, so that's why I say go wild, eat bison or elk or um, wild boar instead of, of beef, eat pheasant or goose instead of uh, chicken or even duck if it's, a, if it's a good duck, eat lamb, eat wild boar instead of pork, and then eat uh, wild caught 
fish and shellfish. And so by doing that, and now we have, again, my book was written five years ago, but I started doing this, deploying this methodology 10 years ago uh, from the wildatarian perspective, and we have so many thousands of, of outcomes in our practice. It's beyond the anecdotal evidence now. We've created a body of evidence that says you get better when you use your, your genetic blueprint in your current state of health. Well, I understand that the sulfur-containing foods, like cruciferous vegetables, garlic, onion, are not so good for the person that has difficulties metabolizing and absorbing sulfur. But are there any general other things you can say, like uh, the dirty bird? I mean, most of us would think an organic dirty bird is okay. I mean, you kind of hinted that pork might not be such a good thing, maybe for the same reasons. What other foods, uh, you know, that are nonspecific for a type that we generally think are healthy or not? Well, really interesting is turmeric. So turmeric, there's so much turmeric being an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory. However, if you have the CYP2D6 gene, then if you eat turmeric, you're going to slow your phase one liver detoxification by up to 50%. So that phase one liver detox, right? That's a lot. Exactly. And so we actually had a client that had come here for the first time and she says, I don't understand. I've gained 15 pounds almost overnight. I've done nothing different. And so we started because we're, we're big detectives here. And I had her take me very much through her day. What exactly are you eating? What have you changed? She was drinking five cups of turmeric tea a day. She had the CYP2D6 gene. She was blowing up. Her lymphatics were just, they couldn't handle the inflammation. And so turmeric is also an oxalate. And so if you have the oxalate burden, turmeric's going to be a problem. And it's really dynamic because I personally have the CYP2D6 gene, and my kids would always make fun of me. They do not. That, um, that why didn't I like Indian food and why couldn't I eat curry? It literally made me sick. And now I know why. Wow. It's that gene snip that just stops my detox. That is so interesting that for some people, turmeric uh, leads you the wrong way. For most of us, all of us, maybe dirty bird chicken will. What other foods might surprise us? Well, you know, a, a big food that might surprise us actually are almonds. So when you look at and the research, when I first, when I wrote my first book, I was talking about almonds being such an amazing food because they, Tufts University said that if you eat an almond a day, you reduce your stroke of uh, your risk of stroke by 60%. It's high in vitamin E. However, almonds are one of the highest oxalate foods. What are oxalates? Oxalates will create oxalate crystals, and especially in the space of a fungal organism, a yeast organism by the name of Candida. Candida increases our oxalic acid burden, which then shifts our dopamine and serotonin away from balance. And so drinking almond milk, if you have a dairy sensitivity because you were told you had candida, can actually make it worse. Wow. And so we have this move to almond milk, and it's the, we don't want to do that. If you don't, if you have an oxalate sensitivity and or even if you have candida, and the brilliant work of Dr. Ben Lynch, who wrote a book called Dirty Genes, so in his, in his uh, research, he's suggesting that even if you don't have the gene variants, your genes can be dirtied by other genes and by other experiences. So 
we're seeing a lot more in this environment having an oxalate situation. And what was fascinating, Susan, is most recently I, I had a client who came in and their renal function was problematic, very, their bone creatinine, they had protein in their urine, um, their albumin was off, but he was a vegetarian, but he was doing high oxalate burden. Well, guess what? <laughs> Oxalates can build amyloids. Amyloids are truncated proteins. So he, we figured out that he was having protein malabsorption by eating a, a ton of oxalate-rich foods and was hitting his renal panel. And wow. Kidneys. So it's like once removed, but that's how fascinating this world of food that back to Stephanie's point is before glyphosate and beyond all of the bad things it does for oxidative stress and the monoaminos and the shikamite pathway, all of that, it flips our genes and it flips our genes in these very big areas. So we can't break down oxalates anymore. So spinach, a spinach almond smoothie can make you have <laughs> very bad pain in your joints the next day or worse over time can create oxalate burden to the point where you have kidney stone or, or a gallstone or a pituitary adenoma, right? These benign, benign little tumors or you have polycystic ovarian syndrome because you're building these cysts, right? We call these these um, individuals, I call them construction workers because they're building things, right? Um, so I've, I have these types, these archetypes. Are you a kidney archetype? Are you a liver archetype? Are you a lymph archetype? Wow. This is fascinating. Uh, you know, I mean, this is so important because we're not putting these pieces together that turmeric or broccoli might shoot us off the wrong way. Uh, when can we I mean, add um, Haagen-Dazs ice cream? Is, can everybody eat that? <laughs> well, actually, I love Haagen-Dazs because it doesn't have guar gum. It's yeah, pretty, yeah, or pretty the great. carcinogen or whatever it is. Exactly. Carcinogen or whatever it is. Yes, that one. <laughs> that, that's the so, one, yes. I'm finding that we're much pro-good cow dairy these days. We, I've taken some individuals that have not been able to eat dairy in 20 years, and they're happily eating dairy daily. And they were told, you can't eat dairy, but you look at their genetic polymorphism, and you don't have a dairy situation. And we took away the other things that could have influenced their consumption, their ability to consume dairy happily. Not Eating dairy doesn't mean all dairy, because if you have a sulfur sensitivity and you're eating a lot of yogurt, sulfur intersects with histamine. Yogurt is high histamine. So not all dairy is created equal. Or if you have a fat metabolism gene or variances in many fat metabolism genes, you're not going to be able to eat those really soft, gooey cheeses because they're very fat-based. But you might be able to eat a, a mozzarella or a Parmesan cheese. So we really get very granular on what that means. But what's so important about dairy, Susan, especially in this, in this these last few years where the oxalate burden has really become problematic is Calcium oxalates are obviated by calcium citrate, which is rich in, dairy is rich in that. So actually, right, the right kind of dairy helps manage the oxalate burden. Hmm. And so I have found that to be fascinating because as a child, I could never tolerate dairy. I love dairy. Dairy is my friend because I have a lot of oxalate metabolism impairment genes. So I happily drink A2 milk. I eat the right kind of cheeses. I stay away from the high histamine cheeses or the aged cheeses. But I'm very happily eating dairy, and it actually nourishes me. 
Well, tell us about histamine. So histamine has really become a big deal. So at its most basic definition, histamine is an inflammatory response because the body says, "Uh uh-oh, something has entered here, I don't like you, and I'm going to front and attack. And the, the gland that manages our histamine response are the adrenals because the adrenals are little fighters that produce our natural corticosteroids that create that lowering the inflammatory response. So Mr. Pituitary, which I call air traffic, traffic control out in the middle of our brain, says, hey, adrenals, you go produce, you go produce that corticosteroid so you can lower the inflammatory response. But when the histamine is out of control, the adrenals, first they get really tired so then we can have adrenal fatigue over time. But histamine is linked multiple-fold. There is an intersection between sulfur and histamine in the phase one liver detoxification pathway. And so you, histamine people used to think, well, I have a histamine response because I'm allergic and I'm, I have a pollen allergy and I'm sneezy and my eyes are watery and itchy. Well, another aspect of histamine, I call it sneezing on the inside. Histamine is actually an excitatory neurotransmitter. So you might be experiencing a histamine response and you're actually anxious. You might be experiencing a histamine response and it's destabilizing your insulin. You might be experiencing a histamine response and your gut, which that your practitioners thought was small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, was actually a mast cell response in the GI tract due to histamine. So it's very insidious and very tricky, but we, we are very good at making those um, detective moves and figuring that out. How can the average person uh, guess if they've got a histamine issue? Uh, well, if you have allergies, that's pretty, pretty easy to know. Um, the histamine, so... Histamine is a little bit more insidious, as I've said, but if you eat something and all of a sudden you have like little red bumps on your face, that's a hive. You just had a histamine response. Um, If you eat something and you get extremely anxious, that could be a histamine response. What if you are very sensitive to fragrances? Okay, so that's a really good question. So that's part of the PON1 polymorphism, which has to do with chemical and environment, environmental sensitivities, but it intersects with histamine. So environmental sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, any kind of pharmaceutical sensitivities also intersect with histamine. That's why Stevens-Johnson syndrome, where we're literally combusting uh, with our mucous membranes, can actually be deadly, right? The mucous membranes. Oh, I've seen it. It's nasty. Like a it's very nasty. It's nasty. That's the very, very nasty. It's a, it's a, it is a phase one. It's the PON1 gene. It's the CYP226, the CYP34A, all these CYP genes and histamine. They play together in that phase one liver detoxification. So, frankly, if you have any of those genes, turmeric could set off a histamine response. And actually, that's what was happening to me. It was setting off a histamine and oxalate response in my body. That's why I felt like I was on fire when I was eating um, anything with curry. So, uh, wow. So, and what foods uh, play into histamine? Like, what about probiotics, etc.? Yeah, so great question. Great question. So, 
Probiotics are tend to be high histamine, even the soil-based probiotics, even the low histamine probiotics. I'm very mindful of probiotics in my practice. First of all, they're very large organisms, and if you have a leaky gut, that probiotic may be too big for you right now. We've got to seal those tight junctions before we introduce a probiotic. So order is very important. And when we work with our clients, we don't just tell them to take all their supplements at once. There's a very intentional protocol of order, and you start them various days apart so we know that we're doing A before B, not putting Z before C. So foods that contain histamine, anything fermented or sprouted, Believe it or not, banana and avocado are super high histamine. Chickpeas are high histamine. Eggplant is a high histamine. Generally, moldy foods can be high histamine. Yogurt is high histamine, and yogurts have probiotics. So those foods, we say, try to have a low histamine diet if you know your histamine. We had somebody, Susan, with idiopathic anxiety disorder. I call idiopathic idiopathic. That means nobody knows why you're having this anxiety disorder and no no pharmatropic could support this individual. It was histamine. We put her on a DAO enzyme and we put her on uh, uh, manganese, which is an antihistamine, and quercetin, which is an antihistamine and mast cell stabilizer. And we worked collaboratively with her doctor and suggested chromalin, which is a mast cell stabilizer, and her anxiety was gone. What can you tell us about the spike protein? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, the spike protein has really become ubiquitous in our our world. Uh, If we live on this planet, we've been exposed, more than likely. Yep. What's so fascinating, Susan, is the spike protein is mirroring a lot of these things that we're seeing in the food supply. So the spike protein is turning on viral loads. It's in the clinical literature. It's turning on Epstein-Barr, varicella, cytomegla, the herpes family of viruses. It's turning on the histamine receptor gene, which is fascinating. It's increasing our iron burden, which then becomes lipid-like, and then iron then makes amyloids. The spike protein has seven vectors of amyloid genesis. So if you're eating chicken and you're spiked, you're in trouble. And that's why more than ever, being wild has to be center plate in the way that we manage our life because it's literally creating what I'm calling the disrupted mirror effect. And it's in the clinical literature. Happy to share it with your audience. But that was something that because of our practice where we have clients every day and we perform applied kinesiology, we're getting real-time feedback on the body. And because I'm a, I'm a pattern recognizer, I started discerning these patterns. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then we found it in the clinical literature. And then we're seeing in, the, in our outcomes that that was what was happening. And so this is also, more than ever. Also, people have reporting turbo cancers. But you at one point mentioned that the pandemic, uh, insulin dysregulation became a big issue Is that more than just sitting home and eating donuts? Yes. There's multiple reasons for uh, the the, the insulin becoming a problem. One is the histamine receptor gene can dislodge insulin. But what the spike protein does is it uses the angiotensin-converting enzyme to bring itself into the host cell. When that happens, uh, we have GABA disruption. GABA is lowered. There's three 
is an amino acid and a neurotransmitter. There's three major areas where GABA lives in our body, the central nervous system, the uh, pancreas, and the ovaries. And so when GABA is depleted, we GABA is used to bring insulin into the cells. Well, GABA is now not there, <laughs> not there in sufficient amounts, and now you can't bring insulin into the cells. So we've got the histamine receptor, which also increases insulin insensitivity or insulin dysregulation because it can go either way. We now have GABA depletion. We have, we have iron. We know that the spike protein increases the iron burden. Iron can dislodge insulin. We have these multiple vectors of insulin dysregulation. What would you recommend to get rid of the spike protein? Oh, my. Uh, well, don't eat, wa- don't eat amyloid-based foods. Don't eat anything that's going to contribute to that. Um, everyone is bio-individual in our practice. Uh, there have been some studies. Uh, actually, iodine has been known to manage the spike protein. Uh, serapeptase, nanokinase, have, which are proteolytic en- enzymes, have been known to manage the spike protein. Uh, we know that any kind of enzyme that breaks things down, we know that methylene blue is being looked at in managing the spike protein. In some cases, we look to manage, especially if the individual has a lot of fat metabolism impairment genes because corona is lipid, right? It's a lipid layer of spike protein. So using emulsifiers like betaine and lipase and in some cases salt, Salt, sea salt is an emulsifier. Vitamin C is an emulsifier if you don't have and high iron loads. And you dabble in quantum physics. How is that related to health and healing? <laughs> that is the alpha and the omega of health and healing because we're energy. Everything is energy. And the brilliant work of Dr. Bruce Lipton, signal to the cell. is The signal to the cell is not just the pathogen or the environment. The emotional piece, our emotional environment, the thought creates the thing. Every thought we think has a wave. That wave intersects with our genetics. It intersects with our cells. It intersects with the signaling internally to us. That's why stress is such a silent killer. I think Dr. Mark Hyman says that uh, 95% of the disease starts with stress. And so what is stress? It's a signal interrupter to the facility of the brilliance, which is the communication vehicles within our body. So everything is energy. So, uh, so people uh, use surround uh, themselves. I hate to interrupt, but we've got two minutes left. So do you of have course. any final parting words? And can you tell people how to get a hold of you, you know, get a hold of your book and find out more information about this fascinating topic? Absolutely. Well, we're brilliant. We're brilliant, energetic beings. We're brilliant machines. It's the most brilliant machine that could ever be built. And so the body knows that it's trying to seek always. So there's really big hope here. Our practice proves it day in and day out that there's always not only hope, but sustainable ways to bring ourselves back to the best version of ourselves. And then to get a hold of me, terrycochran.com. I'm on. Um, I have many platforms which, within which you can find me. My wild vegetarian book, Living as Nature Intended, it's on Amazon. Uh, my website has tremendous amount of blogs that we're always seeking to inform because we feel that that brings us from fear into power, and so um, we're here to we're here to continue teaching and informing and learning ourselves. 
So it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today, Susan. Well, it's been wonderful. Uh, I love this information. So uh, to the audience, I recommend you, if you want to learn more about this, to get her book and you'll get a clue of which pathway you're on and which uh, areas you might be having trouble uh, absorbing and digesting. And then you can experiment with this so you can see her for further more detailed examination so pass this information on because this is a piece of this puzzle that we weren't looking at we all thought turmeric is great broccoli is wonderful kale is magnificent so uh share this word share it with your doctors Uh, always consult with your doctor and above all be well thank you for listening Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Hey!